to be here this weekend and just see in so many ways just the incredible, well, your name says it all, the grace of God and his commitment to this church. It's just very moving, you know. And uh, we we are delighted to, in a very small way, to to say, you know, we've had a little bit of the joy of being part of this journey that you guys are on. And we we celebrate you. I, I've got my phone here, not to check my messages. <laughs> but um, I did read this prophetic word that one of my elders, Louis Nell, has been with me on eldership for more than 20 years. So he's a very close friend of mine as well. And... Uh, He's half German. He doesn't mince his words. So when he says something, it's straight down the line. And this is what he says. I'll just read part of it. He says, I am preparing you for a new season of effectiveness where you will feed many. And then he goes on and he says, I am preparing a banqueting feast where you will see and taste and experience that God is good. And um, then I listened to Lindsay speaking before the meeting, and she talked about how she was quite moved, and she was moved now, and she shared as well, when she looked, and like today, it's like a feast, you know, there's this banqueting feast of such richness here. I mean, there's grandfathers, grandmothers here, that have got track records that go back almost to Noah, um, (laughs) of serving God, you know, faithfully. And we've got young people, young moms, young dads, little ones with dreams for their kids. We've got parents of teenagers. It's like a feast of uh, representing people from all, everywhere. And um, it is, I just want to, this is not my message. This is just to just really just say, just drink in the feast of God, which is yourselves. Do what Lindsay said. Look around the room every now and then and just there's a feast of God gathering his people because he loves the city where he's put you. He loves this place. He loves you all. He, his heart is breaking for this world. And so, so this is a feast he's prepared even to feed this region. You know? It just says you will feed many. This church is going to feed many. It's a banquet. It's got plenty of food. Say, so come and eat here. We've got to spare. So in the f- you know, I hope that picture will stay with you, but I, I sense that very strongly on my heart. And I also have this word, the beauty of the Lord, that I just sense um, that you represent and that you are exhibiting. There's a beauty of God that is visible and tangible here. And you know, beauty is a, is a strange thing. David used to write about it. And it always intrigues me that a, a soldier that, does a, you know, that could slay Goliath and then he could write a poem. And he'd say, I'll gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Isn't it amazing? That, must, that beauty must have been so strong that a soldier that could fight a giant will be struck by such beauty that he'd write a poem about it. You know? And I just sense there's something of the beauty of the Lord that this, this place where you live in desperately needs to see. Because there's, there's such ugliness in our world. Um, sadly to say, but there's beauty in the church because of Christ, and you're carrying that beauty. I want to say over you, you are, I hope I, I say this respectfully in no, no other way, but to say you are beautiful. You are beautiful in this place, and the world is desperate for beauty, desperate to be captivated by the beauty 
of God's people. So I want to just say that to you. Um, and then the other thing before I get started is that tomorrow um, I'm going to be preaching on mental health. Actually, I've, the full title is, What Does the Bible Say About Mental Health? Because this world, when you just look at what's going on, the intensity of the mental health issues of our world has escalated, it seems to me, I'm no expert, but it seems to have escalated dramatically over the last few years. And that yet we carry something because it's in the word of God. So it's, it's, it's a non-condemning message. You can go and invite people that might not come to church normally to say, look, there's going to be a message about what the Bible shows to help us with mental health issues. That really is the emphasis. How does the Bible help us if we're going through mental health issues? So uh, I mention that also because I, I sense that, that if people will just come, they will taste here. Just by being here, they will taste the Lord is good. And so it's good to just say maybe you can invite somebody that wouldn't normally come or hasn't been coming. Say, come along. Uh, we're going to look into the subject of mental health. So I'm going to do that tomorrow in the meeting. But today I, I am taking this as a commissioning time. Not that you're not commissioned, but it's to affirm your commission. So I'm going to be talking about the Great Commission and I, I realized that that might immediately make people dial out because yeah, I know the Great Commission. Here we go. Um, but I, honestly, I want to ask you, stay engaged. I sense the commissioning breath of God upon you in a fresh way. I sense that. So it's not a new commission, but it's like God breathing it afresh on you as a church and in particular this afternoon is what I'm going to be focusing on. So open up to Matthew 28. And I'm going to look at God's plan to fulfill this Great Commission as well. So that's what I'm going to look at. But we're going to start off with the Great Commission and read it. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Matthew 28 verse 18 to 20. I also want to say I'm, I am aiming this as a, as a teaching for you to have that you can take with you and implement wherever God sends you. Lindsay shared with me, she saw last night how there were arrows being shot out. Am I right? And that the leadership were like arrows being shot out. So the possibility is that some of you might be here for a while and then be shot out like arrows. And this is something you can take with you because it's about practically what, how do we fulfill this great commission? So, so, some of you might have heard what I'm saying many times, but I'm going to go through it in any case. So let's read Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. So there we have what's known as the Great Commission. I'm going to start off. My introduction is just a few quick truths we can immediately extract directly from this text that I think is important for us. Um, the first is, and these are quite simple truths you can immediately see, but let's just state the obvious. They hear in the text. The first is it's got a start date and an end date, this commission. Jesus said, 
to the disciples, wait. Remember that? He says, wait in Jerusalem until you have received power from on high. And the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. That was the start date of the Great Commission. It began then. It had a beginning. It began at the first Pentecost. And it's got an end date. The end date's written here. It's in our commission. It's the end of the age. Okay, so I know I'm stating the obvious, but we need to hear this. In other words, this commission is active. It's active today. It's hanging. It's not then. It's not coming. It's active. It's got a start date and an end date, and we're in it. It hasn't expired. It's not to come. It's active. And the end of the age, if you're unsure what that means, that simply means the day Jesus comes back. So when you see him coming on the clouds, you can say, okay, it's ended now. The Great Commission is now finished. Um, I had a friend who said he's not even going to stop when he sees Jesus coming. He's going he's to grab some unsafe people, both arms, and as he goes up into the air, he's going to take them with him and say, repent or I'm going to drop you. <laughs> so, so I know that's a joke, a bad joke. But anyway, anyway, if I tell you who told me the joke, you'll understand that it was a kind of joke that fitted with him. But, but, uh, but anyway, we've got an end date. We haven't got there yet. So in other words, we've got to accept the fact, I am under Jesus' commission right now. Second truth that we can immediately see here is that it applies to every disciple. You can't get a, an exception clause anywhere here. You cannot find any way where I can dodge this commission. You cannot say, well, it says to go all the elders and make disciples of all nations. Or go all deacons and make disciples. So there's no exception clause. What we also need to see is that it didn't only apply to the first disciples. Because else it wouldn't make sense. Because none of them survived till the end of the age. So I know I've read some theologians said this was exclusive for the 12, well, 11 apostles. And it's kind of like them and all of that. They didn't get to the end of the earth. Nor did they survive to the end of the age. So therefore this commission wasn't exclusive for them. It applies to every disciple. So in other words, from that's why I mentioned at the beginning, from the grandpa, grandma here, right through to the young, the youngest person here, is your commission. Third quick truth: it's not primarily about evangelism. This is not an evangelism verse only, because it says here the end goal of our commission is to produce for Jesus obedient disciples. Because it says there, go make disciples, teach them to obey. So the end goal is not converts, but obedient disciples. Now, our kids are now in their 20s. But I think even as parents, the concept of, of the time that it takes to actually see your children growing up and developing where they start to make choices that are right choices, they're starting to make their own free choices in the right direction, doesn't just happen overnight. 
If it applies to our children, how much more does it not apply here that the process of seeing people becoming obedient disciples of Jesus is a lifelong work of all of us. Our goal together is to see life, a lifelong investment through variety of means to see people becoming obedient disciples. It includes evangelism. It includes teaching. It includes modeling all these things. So that together we can form uh, this end goal of seeing people becoming obedient disciples of Christ. The, the next truth that we see here is that it implies cultural awareness. Now, um, that might not be immediately apparent, but it says here, it doesn't just say go and make disciples of everybody. It specifically uses the term all nations. And one thing that one needs to understand is that the Bible is very respectful of people's nations in the sense of it doesn't just say all nations, nor does it exclude the fact that we just go and we are just treating everybody the same. Specifically, it mentions nations. And when you get to the book of Revelations, you actually see that the success of the Great Commission will be seen in the end time church in heaven with Christ is that every tongue and tribe and nation will be worshipping before the throne. So there's a, an awareness that this commission is sensitive to the fact that we are going to be taking this commission into many nations. And it's such an important thing that we carry something that's relevant for all nations, but it comes with a respect for the different nations and cultures that we will be exposed to. Because that's something that this commission is designed for. And we find it through many different examples. I think we were reading about Timothy Keller and how he started his church in New York City. And he writes that when they arrived in New York City, he says New York City's people were not neutral towards Christianity. They were aggressively against it. But he was sensitive to the fact that this is where God had called him to be. And so what they did as a leadership was they began to study what were the aggressive offenses against Christianity in their community. So they actually studied what the people's gripes were with Christianity. And then they began to develop their sermons around those specific topics. And you can see if you, if you listen to any of Timothy Keller's sermons or you read some, so much of it has been built around actually becoming culturally aware of the place where God has put you to bring this great commission in, to study the community and then to actually be aware that I've got what they need, but he has sent me to a specific nation or culture. And so the great commission is very much something that is aware of the fact that it will be applicable in different nations, but we need to be culturally sensitive. So we pick that up there. Then what we also need to pick up, and this is just... It's just something that I think is important to all of us. I have, I, I'm, I'm preaching to the people that will agree with me. But it's interesting to me that in the middle of all this massive thing of going to the nations and we've got this wonderful message of Jesus, of water baptism. I mean, you should rather add it on as an annexure or an addendum or something at the end, you know, of this massive. I mean, because sometimes we think water baptism is not that important. But he puts it right here in the Great Commission, water baptism. And it's something that I think we just need to realize that we need to see that 
There's something about water baptism. We mustn't lose the importance of it. We must not lose that part of the Great Commission in getting people to be obedient disciples is to see them water baptized. We must not lose that. It's in our commission. We must not put it aside and use it as, uh, you know, it's a bit controversial. You know, it divides the guys and whatever. So let's just, but actually it's something that we need to realize is in there. So there's our commission introduced. But I want to go through some of the ways I can see in the scripture how we are going to fulfill it. So I am commissioned. That's why I sense God wants to breathe this commission on you. It's your commission. It's our commission. But what are some of the ways? So it's going to be a little bit of scriptural um, study. So a little bit like um, going through verses, looking at verses, and putting things together. So it's a little bit of a, a kind of a scriptural study. So I want to then start off by looking at how Jesus began to introduce the way this commission would be fulfilled. Because he did have a plan. He didn't just give the commission. He was the plan that he was building. And in the New Testament, I think we, we need to see Jesus describes God's way. And I'm not saying we've got the full picture. But he used terms that I think are very helpful called the terms wineskin and wine. So I'd like to, I'd like to touch on that scripture. Matthew chapter 9. And have a look at wineskin and wine. And verse 17. Because Jesus introduced this image of a wineskin that contains wine at a very significant point. John's disciples were mentioned. The, the Jewish teachers of the law were mentioned. And in that context, which is very much the system from the Old Testament, Jesus introduces this image. He says in verse 17, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And so both are preserved. And so he introduces both a structure and the life-giving, thirst-quenching content of the structure. He introduces it and he says it's got to be new because the old has proven that it cannot contain the new content it can't the old systems can't hold it so he's referring in a sense to the old testament structures old testament law all those kind of structures and he says those things will not be able to take the new one and in a very brief way without going into a study of it we can see jesus clearly in his ministry from the wedding in cana introduced the wine the new wine he was pointing to his life that he would pour out for many. The life of Christ, which for us works through us by his Holy Spirit, but it is the life of Christ. And it is the most critical thing that we carry in all the world is we carry within us by the Holy Spirit the life of Jesus, which is what this world is desperately, desperately thirsting for. They are thirsting, thirsting for the life of Christ. And they might fill it with all kinds of other toys, the life of Christ. And we need to just realize that this is the most important thing in all the world for me to dispense into this world. 
more than anything else that I need to be able to be a dispenser of is the life of Christ. That's what this world needs. That's the answer to every single problem in this world is the life of Christ. And he's come that they may have life and have it to the full. He was talking of his life. He has offered it with limitless availability to those that will believe in him. The life of Christ is there, and it's what this world needs. It's the life of Christ that has brought us to forgiveness. It's the life of Christ that brought you and me to a place of actually bowing before Christ and having our sins forgiven. It's the life of Christ that is healing us. It's the life of Christ that is filling us with wholeness. It's the life of Christ that is exuding us, that is, that is making us wanting to go to wherever he sends us. It's the life of Christ, and it is the very thing that this world is so desperate for. And so that's the wine. And that's all that we will ever boast about. We will not boast about the wineskin. And I think that's a very obvious truth. But in the end, a thirsty person is not so interested in the fancy wineskin. The thirsty person, give me the, give me to drink. That will quench my thirst. And so, so we need to understand that the wineskin is the structure or the vehicle. It is important so that the wine can be effectively poured into this world. So you cannot Write off the wineskin and say it's not necessary. That it's just going to rain wine. Jesus has shown us the fact that he's not just going to rain the life of Christ down on this earth from heaven. But he's going to dispense it through a vehicle. There is a vehicle that he has chosen. A flexible vehicle that will dispense the wine into this world. And that he introduced to us as his church. We are the dispensers. So in your individual capacity but Together, knitted together into this vehicle. He called it, he introduced the term for it. We'll look at that just now, but he introduced the term for it. It is his church. We are the dispensers of the life of Christ. Why did he design it this way? I don't know. But the fact is, this is it. He has made it this way. So let's have a look then. We know what the wine is. Let's have a look at the wine skin because that is now the structure. And some people hate structure. They want to say it's irrelevant, you know. But we need to see that there's value in the structure because Jesus said that without the structure, both will be destroyed. And that's something important to bear in mind. The structure itself will be destroyed and the wine will be lost. Very interesting and important for us to embrace the value of the fact, why does this wineskin need to hold it's for the sake of the wine. Why, why, must this, why must we preserve our unity? Why must we contend for unity in the body of Christ? Why must we contend for the church? Why must we contend for the, the, the patterns that we see in the scripture about what church should look like? It's because of the importance that Jesus said. The wine, is, the wine skin is working properly, then the wine's going to get where it should be. So that's it. So we're not yet to, to kind of promote some kind of moral denomination or anything. We're just talking of church and why church is important. Church is important because it must dispense the wine. That's why. That's why. So if you get offended with somebody in the church, think beyond your offense and think about the wine. For the wine to get out, I need to sort out my offenses so that this wine skin can do its job. It's such a critical thing. And that's why I believe the devil will always come. And one of the names of the devil is slanderer. He will always come to try and get the vehicle 
kind of all crusted over and knotted up because he knows that if the wine is flowing, he, that everything he's trying to do is in danger because the wine, he can't fight it. We overcome the evil one by the blood of the lamb. So he, he wants to try and stop the flow. He wants to hold that up and say he will always try to get into our heads to bring some kind of thing because he knows he's got to stop the flow. But we've got to protect it, and there's a suppleness of the new wineskin that it can flex, which is us. We have to keep our loved, where's the, was it, no, we said about keep our hearts soft. Um, Logan, sorry, got muddled up, who said what? Yeah, we've got to keep our hearts soft. Why? Because of the wine. It's not just for me, whatever. Keep my heart soft because the wine. I've got to keep it soft. I've got to forgive. I've got to get over my offenses. Keep my heart soft. Why? Because the wine. The world is desperate. They are broken. You know? And um, anyway, let's have a look at the wine skin. I want to look at when Jesus first gave the term church. So we're going to just look at that in Matthew 16. If you Please turn there if you can. This is the first time out of two times in the four Gospels where we have the actual word church used. Both times used by Jesus. And so I'd like to read Matthew 16 verses 15 to 18. So Jesus is talking to his disciples and he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's a significant verse because sometimes we only know this last part, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But we've got to realize this is the first time in the Bible where we have the word church. The very first time it's ever used in the Bible. It's right here. And it's an important verse if you're wanting to look at the wineskin. And there's some things about the church here that we want to look at as a look at the formation of the church. Jesus is talking about this church he's going to build. There's some things I want to point out to you. I am being a little bit technical today, but I believe I, I wanting to give things that you can take with you. I see you guys going, planting churches, whatever God might do with your life, that you can take this, that one understands just there's a model of the wineskin. So, yeah, Jesus introduces the term, and it's important to see how he introduces it. He introduces it and he says, my church. So immediately he establishes the truth that it is his. He's the owner of the wineskin. That's very, very important. Especially if you want to go around and starting to say negative stuff about the church. You've got to say, hang on, hang on, hang on. There are a lot of imperfect people doing stupid stuff maybe in the church. But be careful what you say because there's an owner. 
and Jesus declared at the announcement of the church, it's my church. And if you read the letters to the Corinthians, I'm sure you know it, but the Corinthian Christians, they did a lot of stuff that wasn't so good. If you read through the letters, Paul had his hands full trying to sort out all the issues. And your last letter, you said this. And no, you mustn't do that. And your feasts are wrong. And all. I mean, he had his hands full. And they tolerated terrible immorality. And they thought they were doing a good thing by doing that. And all this stuff's going on. And he's writing these letters and all this correction. But you know how he starts the letter? He says, to the church of God in Corinth. So we just see this incredible fact that Jesus is not shy or embarrassed or ashamed of his church, no matter how badly they behave. And that's a lesson for us to learn. Because there's some bad behavior going on, but Jesus never backs off from saying it's my church. And they've done some terrible things and inexcusable things, but Jesus is my church. Be careful how you speak about my church. You know, just... Always bear that in mind. There's a preciousness about the body of Christ. Even when they are doing terrible things, they're precious because they're his. So we, we pick that up when he introduces it. He introduces it with this possessive pronoun, mine, my church. And in fact, if you read in uh, um, Acts chapter 20, the ownership isn't just because he's claiming it. In Acts 20 it says, for I have purchased, for he has purchased the church with his own blood. And so we, we see not only is it his just because he's claimed it, because he is the founder of it, but it's also he has paid for her. He has ransomed her. So he has doubly paid in that sense for his church. He has started the church. It's his church. And then he went and he has ransomed her. He has paid with his own blood. And so we have this Immediate awareness of this wineskin. The wineskin is owned by Christ. He's, only, he's not ashamed of it. Second thing we need to see here is the nature of the church is that it's built on a revelation. The church is built on a revelation. Because we see it in here. And he, he says this amazing thing to Simon, Bar Jonah, and Peter. He uses two different names for this guy. And he starts off and he says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That means Simon's son of Jonah. He was talking about his dad, Jonah. Simon's dad was Jonah. And then immediately Jesus goes on and he says, so he says, Simon, I know your dad is Jonah, but let me tell you about my dad. Isn't it interesting that, that he says, Simon, you've got a natural blessing because you're the son of Jonah. There's some natural things. You've got your genes, your good looks, and everything from your dad. They come this way. But let me tell you about my dad and what he's just done to you. He says to him, but my father has given you a revelation that I am the Christ. That's what my father. And you know what dads do? Dads generally throughout history are the ones that kind of give the surname. They give identity. They provide identity. That is part of what I believe dads bring. They bring us, not that moms don't do that, but they bring a strong sense of identity. And so the church is built not on the natural identity we get. Our identity as the wineskin is built from our father. 
We are those that have got a revelation from our Father in heaven. And what is the revelation? The revelation is that Jesus is the Christ. That means he's the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. He is the one that the Jewish nation were waiting for for all those centuries to come. He is the one that has come. And in our understanding, he is the Savior of the world. And so the church is built on a revelation that Christ is the Savior of the world. Whether that person that has that revelation um, is in this church or in another church, in the sense we understand this, the church is made up of people who have received a revelation from the Father in heaven that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and that he is their Savior. The church is not built on anything else. I think we sang it earlier. On nothing else than Jesus Christ. That is what it is built on. They have received a revelation from the Father. Now, Jesus used the word here. He says, flesh and blood didn't give you that revelation, but my Father gave it to you. It is a gift. In other words, Peter didn't get the revelation because of his righteousness. He didn't get the revelation because he was like the bravest of the disciples. He didn't get the revelation because he was the loudest or whatever you want to say. He got it because it was a gift. And so the church is built on a revelation that has come by grace alone. So we get such an incredible insight into the church just in these passages. It is built on the revelation that Jesus is the Savior. And receiving that as my revelation. And it is a gift from God. In other words, I can never boast about the fact that I'm in the church of Jesus Christ. I can never ever boast because it's a gift from God. And that is how I approach the lost in this world. That is how I approach those that don't know Christ. I'm not out there to moralize them. I'm not out there to be the moral police in society and go and tell them how to behave. That's not because I cannot do that because the only difference between me and them is that I have received by a gift from God a revelation that Jesus is my Savior. That's all that separates me from this world. And I was plucked out of darkness and transported into His glorious kingdom by the revelation given by a gift from God that Jesus is the Savior. And so when I reach out to the people of Centurion, whatever, I'm not out there to tell them how bad they are, or I'm telling out there to tell them to stop doing all these wrong things that they're doing, and you're such evil people. I'm out there to give them the wine. And what is the wine? It is the fact that there is a, I'm carrying the life of Christ. And that revelation that this is the life of the Savior of the world is what they need. And that's my commission. I'm not out there to moralize society. I'm not out there to try and fix behavior out there. My life will do it. By wherever God puts me, I'm getting a fragrance of Christ that's going to influence the, the environment and change the atmosphere where he puts me. But my commission is not to moralize. My commission is to actually bring the life of Christ so that people can taste and then believe that he is the Savior of the world and receive the gift of God. So I think it's very important for us to understand this wineskin and how it is formed in us. The other thing that we, we can see here is that this is referring to the entire church throughout history. And people have got various terms. They're not in the Bible, but there's a, a, a useful term. But there are denominations that are, or sects that are named that. But one can almost say Jesus is referring to the universal church. 
of God. Now, I'm not referring to any particular denomination or sect, but the universal church, meaning all of the believers from history, is what Jesus is calling you as my church. So we've got to see this great, massive people that we will only see with our eyes one day in heaven when we stand before the throne of God. And on that day, you and I will be there and we will worship the Lamb together. And then that day, we will look around us in wherever it's going to be and we will see the church that Jesus is speaking of here. And we need to allow that excitement to fill us. There's going to be a day where I'll see this church. Right now, I can't see it. I only see parts of it. I can't see yesterday's saints, and I can't see tomorrow's saints. But there'll come a day when all the saints will go marching in. And we're going to be in that number. And we're going to declare, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. And we will look out there, and we will see. And that's this word, my church. And now, because sometimes we feel outnumbered. Maybe not so much so in South Africa. But uh, you go and walk the streets of Amsterdam or some other nation. My son is in Amsterdam with his wife. And you see him trying to find a church and you see the sizes of the churches in comparison to the size of the city and you see those things. And sometimes we feel so outnumbered. But there's times like this where we actually look here and we just remember there'll be a day and thousands upon thousands upon thousands will gather and we will see the church of Jesus Christ worshiping the Lamb of God. And it makes living in this world worthwhile when we think of that. When we go through tough times, we think of that day. So all of this here, the church. The other thing we need to see here is that the church is one that is being built. It says, I will build it. So there's a building that's taking place. So this is not a finished project. And the building is taking place, and one of the predominant reasons why there's building is that the bricks are still coming. They're still coming. There's bricks coming. He's building this church that we will see on that day. We will see it, and the bricks and the, the things are people. But he's building it. The people are being built in to the body, brick by brick, day by day, age by age, century by century, until Jesus comes and he says the building is ready. And so we need to see there's a building process going on. And that building process is what our Great Commission is about. Is that we are going out there and we are, we are seeing the church being built. We're in a building site. And because it's a building, we need to realize, and it's, it, it comes out in the letter to the Hebrews, is that the, the builder is not only a builder as the way we understand it. He's the architect and the builder. Jesus is an architect builder. So he is the architect, so he's got plans. It's not a random kind of by accident whatever going on here. It's a building project that has a plan that is in motion. We don't see it, but the sovereign power of Jesus Christ means this project is happening on schedule, going through history without missing a beat. It will not fail. It's going to be finished because the architect and builder is God. And so we need to realize that. And so we go through all the bumps and whatever and all the things that happen and turmoil in the church. But we've got to realize, despite all of that, the sovereign power of God is a mystery that makes one's 
A fuses blow. The sovereign power of God is a mystery. But what's happening is through all of history, the gates of hell will not prevail. And we need to realize that that is the power of the church. This is the church of God. He's not ashamed of our weaknesses, our failures, our shortcomings. He's calling us his own, and he's advancing, and the gates of hell. And it's interesting that that expression, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. And, and gates always refer to a holding place. You've got to hold something in. And, and hell or Hades is a holding place of death. And Without the blood of Christ, hell has a claim on your life. And it can hold you. It's got a claim. And it will hold you. If you die, the gates of hell will hold you. But the church sees the gates and we march right through the gates of death. The gates of death will not hold us. That is our victory right here in this life. I mean, and... I mean, many of us have been to funerals, and I, so I need to be sensitive here. But the funeral of a saint, a child of God, has got two important aspects to it. The one is the deep loss of a loved one. And so one's deeply sensitive to that. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, I know that you grieve. So I'm not wanting to be insensitive. But there's another aspect to a, a funeral or a memorial service of a saint is that the gates of hell cannot hold this person. They're just marching right through the gates of death, right through because of the blood of Christ. That is the church's confidence. We have this unstoppable awareness that if you send me to go and preach the gospel in some hostile environment, and maybe I'm going to lose my life for preaching this gospel, you can kill me in this life, but I'll just march right through the gates of hell and I'll be going to be in, in the number of the saints. So that's our confidence. That's why we can fulfill the Great Commission because we've already been assured the gates of hell can't stop us. So if I die, there'll be others coming after me and they'll continue, but I'm going to, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. There's something else we need to see here, and I'll stop with that and have a, 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 a short break is that there's nothing else Jesus anywhere in the Bible says he's building. You can't find him saying he's building anything else. That doesn't mean he isn't, but there's nothing that is attributed to this word, I will build my church. You don't, you don't find he says, I will build your business. Or I will build your empire. Or I will build your army. Or I will build your government. We don't see that anywhere. We see this is the only statement that's linked to what Jesus is building. And that needs to leave us with something of the importance of this body called the church. Is that's the only thing that directly in the scriptures got the privileged signature that we are being built by Christ. Which means for me, if I want to build my family, if I want to build my business, and I want to build whatever it is that I feel is my calling in life, I've got to understand something that it's got to be linked back to this. I cannot build apart from 
being part of this building project. Because this is the only building project that Jesus is committed to. In that sense. And he will build your family and your business in that sense. As long as it's part of this project. To build his church. So I hope that makes sense. It doesn't mean that you can't trust God to make you incredibly successful in business. But you've got to understand. He will be doing that with a higher priority. That through that. There might come. An influence for the building of his church. So he will make all of those things, your family, the way you bring up your kids, your parenting, all those are essential things. As long as they are being done with the central thing that Jesus is building, he's building his church. Which is why I bring up my kids to love the church the best of my ability. I try to do that. And I I try to the best of my ability, if you're in business or you're a teacher or whatever it is you're doing, I'm trying to Make sure that what I'm doing is contributing to the building of his church. Everything. Because that's what he's committed himself to do. And there's nowhere where we find that there's a, another project that takes over where Jesus says, look, I tried to build the church, but really they, they didn't cooperate. And uh, so, okay, plan B. Um, let's try something else. Now, that didn't work too well. We, we need to see. This is the final end-time project. This is the final end-time project. There's no plan B. This is it, and it will succeed because it will be there perfect. Built the bride of Christ. Amen. We take a, a break. Um, how long would you like to...